the smaller your partnerships organization is, I'm a believer that you hire more generalists. And the larger your team gets, the more revenue they're driving, then you hire more specialists. If you're going to have a really small team, they have to be able to wear a lot of different hats. Welcome to SaaS Connect, the SaaS Partnership Podcast, brought to you by the Cloud Software Association. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue-generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast, and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. Hello, everyone. I'm Sunir Shah, President of the Cloud Software Association and CEO of AppLine. Welcome back for another SaaS Connect 101. We have some pretty interesting speakers. They claim they're a Laurel and Hardy Act now going around doing the shtick. So I am going to give them a hard time because they can't be comfortable. This is a SaaS Connect 101. I ask the hard questions. We have today Joni Deus, who is running the partnership team at MailChimp, and Eric Chan, who's running the partnership team at Chargebee. And because we're all doing 2021 planning right now, it was, I thought we'd invite them on to talk about how they have built and run their partnership teams at their respective organizations, both respectable sizes, both with different complexities, and both with different stories. So thank you for having making the time for us. I mean, Joni, would you like to give us a quick introduction about yourself and a little bit about your, your team and role at MailChimp? Sounds good. So I've been at MailChimp about three and a half years or so. When I joined, we rolled up into the marketing organization. We had a partnerships program of sorts. Shortly after I joined, we relaunched those programs. And I'm saying programs plural because we actually split at that time and created two separate programs. One for our what we call service partners or agency partners, channel partners, kind of fill in the blank there. And then one for our technology partners. And that's really the side of the org that I primarily have responsibility for. I have responsibility for the product side of our channel partners but not necessarily the partner management side. And then, Eric, how about yourself? You have a slightly different story at Chargebee. Yeah, so I've been at Chargebee for a little over two years. When I first started, I actually was helping with our startup initiatives. So actually think about it as a, a different type of partnership program. We were working with Techstars, YC500, and several dozen accelerators around the globe. And then about 18 months ago, I moved over to the partnerships team, being the first person there. And I wasn't starting exactly from scratch. I was actually inheriting dozens of partners. Actually, one of them was MailChimp, among others. And the basic reason for it was we were starting to see a lot of activity and we weren't actively managing them. So for example, referrals were happening, but there was no tracking. Partner events were happening, but we were fumbling a little bit with the leads. And so it really needed a lot of attention to try and make it more formalized and actually try to drive you know, some business um, and activity in a more formal way. Okay, so let's just a little format for people who have never been to one of these. This is an opportunity that we invite these veterans of the industry on to tell their stories, but also for you as the audience to ask them questions. So far away in the chat inside Zoom here, we will just quickly as we can just move to Q&A. I mean, that's really that's your time. And for those who are executive members of the Cloud Software Association, we just crossed 100 actually today. It was awesome. Afterwards, we're going to have a speaker's lounge so you can have chit chat with Joni and Eric afterwards. So that's basically format. So fire questions whenever you feel like it. Let me just get to your stories. So before you were both hired, you touched on a little bit, 
But the state of affairs was different in partnerships with both companies. And this is, I think, the most interesting difference about what you had to do as leaders to bring things into order. So I'm going to start with you, Eric, because you probably had the most normal story that most people of us have. What was going on in charge? You said there was something there, but there was no partnership team. So what, what was the state of affairs? You know, as I mentioned, we were doing joint marketing activities with partners, but it was really led from the marketing organization. It was really for them to sort of fill the calendar as well as try to generate content. You know, hats off to our marketing team has been fantastic about just churning out lots and lots of content. I'm sure lots of people who are part of CSA had seen some of the stuff that we've posted on the various topics around what we do. But again, it wasn't, it wasn't in a formal way. It was just sort of on either side, hey, we're thinking about running an event. Do you want to participate? It's going to be in like three or four weeks. And so that'll be enough time for us to throw something together and do some co-marketing and try to get people to show up. So it was very, very sort of haphazard, very kind of off the cuff. And so we had to put a lot more structure because it was also sort of who you knew, meaning if the previous marketing person knew the contact at, let's say, a profit well or a brain tree or something like that, it was who they worked with rather than a methodical, let's go account by account, partner by partner, how could you fill the void? How could you help with some messaging, with some content that could actually achieve either leads or hopefully tying to revenue, et cetera? So in, a, in a, just a much more formalized way. And so for the first three months when I was in the partnerships role, I actually just spent time figuring it out. I tried to actually talk to as many of our partners as possible. You know, really just saying, what do you want from us? What, what can we do to be helpful? In some cases, for the tech partner program, it was easy. It was just manage the relationship, make sure that we're on the positive side, make sure that things are going well and there's no fires that we're burning. You know, that definitely wouldn't have been something that marketing would have been responsible for. The other thing in tandem, well, just one last thing. One thing, the other thing in tandem was that we actually had a specific product manager or a director of product who was focused on integrations. And so I had to build a strong relationship with my counterpart over there in order to make sure that whatever I was doing on the business side could also get executed on from a product and engineering side. So this is a pretty common experience that I want to touch on that maybe lost in the mix here. A lot of time partnerships are reactive and they're relationship-based and it's kind of a mess because everyone in the organization might have surface area with potential partners. So if I was a partner before you joined Chargebee and I wanted to do a partnership with that company, what would happen? Like who would be inbounding it and how, was, how were those relationships being managed? It was just like, that, that's important. I think a lot of people are going to nod their heads when I say this, but basically it would be inbounded through sales or support forwarded to product management with no agreement, just try to get a login or try to find some APIs and just start building. And then maybe they built some contact through LinkedIn for an engineer or somebody and an integration was built. And then because it was usually done in response, as you said, Sunir, reactive to a sales motion, like a prospect, or we're starting to see a few prospects asking for the same thing, that was how they prioritized their work. So the integration was done typically with no formal business contract in place or business side to manage what would happen. Any sort of go-to-market activities would fall by the wayside. And oh, by the way, we have integration with five or six different apps that customers are using. 
So interesting. First, by the way, for those who are executive members, on this topic, on the 21st of December, we're having a masterclass on how to manage and manage integrations uh, by Ryan from Blended Edge. But interesting, you say it comes in from support. Jeff Gardner, who was uh, head of partnerships at Intercom, he actually started off in, in support and success. That's a pretty interesting, it's a pretty normal story. So let's table that for a second, and we'll get back to then what you did from there. But Joni, like you came in a different circumstance. There was We've been there three and a half years. One of the things maybe people don't know is that Mailchimp was one of the founding board members of the trade association. You know, we've been working with them on our partnership level, like myself personally, forever, it feels like. So you had a partnership team coming in. So what what was it like before you started? I would say that the, the situation sounds pretty similar, Eric, and I bet your legal team loved you for some of the wild, wild west that was happening. I would say that, like I said, it was pretty similar from the regard of like, we didn't have a lot of data behind the decisions that we were making. And it's not necessarily that we didn't have the data, we couldn't get the data to make some of those informed decisions. So we ended up making a lot of those decisions based on gut or by which partner was kind of screaming the loudest or which partner was also willing to do co-marketing with us. And that's how we kind of made the, the priorities at that time. I would say from a product standpoint, we didn't have a product team at that point. When I started, what we had realized before I was there, long before I started, we would build integrations on our own. And we'd be super excited about that particular integration. And then a nice new shiny object would come along and we would forget about that integration and it would sit and it would have bugs and it would need love that never got any love because our product team was on to the next new shiny integration or product feature. And so before I started, we had started using third-party developers to build integrations on our behalf. And my team, who again, I mentioned started in marketing, was tasked with managing them. Well, as you can imagine, you had a bunch of partner managers and marketers managing these third-party developers. Like we weren't product people per se. What you got was a lot of emphasis on the integrations because we were paying third parties to do it. But it was a lack of cohesive design and UX, a lack of product features that were important to our users. And we'll talk about in a little while that we evolved and I eventually moved over to product and picked up a product team as a result to, to really try to get more of that cohesion and make sure that the integrations were performing right for our users. But around this same time was when MailChimp evolved from strictly an email company to being a marketing platform. So instead of just integrations that we wanted to work and sync customer and product data over between the two companies, we also were now looking at potential technology partners that were actually powering our own marketing platform. So it really evolved the type of integration partner that we were going after. So we even today still have those types of partnerships and we break those up into a couple different ways. So within technology partners, we look at platform to platform integrations, which are like that traditional syncing data between two separate companies. And the end user is probably still going to use both of those. Then we think about it as white label, which is the customers using that product inside of MailChimp, but they never know that it was powered by an outside party. And then the last type is what we call powered by, where the user is using that technology that we've democratized inside of our platform. Some good examples of those would be Facebook um, and Google. So those are really the different types of partners that we um, support. 
And because of those different types of partners, it's really imperative for us to make sure that we prioritize how we're supporting those partners. And so the main way that we're doing that is using our product teams to build for the standard partners, those platform to platform partners, so that we can free up our partner managers to focus more on those strategic partners that are going to really work inside of our product. Did you have a dedicated like integrations team in place before you started? or We did not, no. We were utilizing third-party. Yeah, interesting. I remember, remember there was an experiment when you guys ran. You even tried to like, invest or give money and grants to people in MailChimp to accelerate partnerships because I think there was a lack. I mean, obviously, you know, this core engineering has to go to core products. This is a common experience. So the magic trick I'm trying to... I'll just reveal the punchline. But what I'm trying to reveal here on both of your stories, I've known you for quite some time, both companies, is both of you are partnership function. When you guys came in, the companies were reacting to partnership demand ad hoc in some kind of chaotic fashion. And then you came in. And this is honestly a pretty good position to be as a partnership manager coming to any company. A lot of people think of partnerships being like this systematic approach, but often it depends on the company's strategy and which companies you have to work with. So like one thing that would be good to clear up is the why partnerships question, which has gotten more interesting at the CSA over the last month. Like there has to be a purpose for partnerships beyond partnerships. Like there's a customer demand and they're working with companies that you're working with that has become a priority. Your two companies have different, I mean, I know you have different spectrums of what's priority. So while Joni, while I have you, like what was for MailChimp when you joined them, like when you got hired, they hired you for a reason. They said, well, it's worth investing here. Why partnerships? At the time that I joined, we had just built out our e-commerce API endpoints. And so our goal at the time was to get more and more e-commerce platform partners onto the ecosystem. And again, the reason for that is because e-commerce platforms typically are pretty rich in data that if you import that data into MailChimp, our customers can then use that data to market on their behalf, right? And so that was kind of the direction at the time that I joined. If you think about it, like for us, why partnerships? We looked at the data and we basically found that like, oh, users that have integrations pay us more. And guess what? They stay longer. Like this is amazing. And the more integrations they have, the more that continues to go up. So like, wow, we need to work on this, right? So that was kind of the the main reason why the integrations became pretty pivotal for us. I would say like what we're looking for in those partners are kind of different things. I think with what we're trying to do is we know customers are going to have a whole suite of tools that they're going to use. We know that MailChimp is not the only tool that they're going to use. So our goal is to integrate with the solutions that our customers are using and make that easier on their behalf. And we kind of take the Switzerland approach and that we want to work with everyone. Even if you have competing products with us, that's okay by us as long as we both can continue down our product roadmaps the way that the business sees fit and our customers are asking us for. From a strategic partner standpoint, we try to look at And this is really a difficult balance. I'm curious, Eric, how y'all handle this, but we try to get to as close of a 50-50 balance as possible. And what I mean by that is both partners have to be benefiting from that relationship. It can't be completely lopsided. And I think it's hard to achieve, but that's what we really try to to focus on. And I think you might've seen in the media that sometimes we aren't able to reach that. And those are typically when we either don't partner with someone or we don't stay partners with someone that's there 
We also are looking for really high quality standards. Having started out as an email only product, a lot of integrations come to us and they're just doing list sync, which isn't super valuable for our customers, to be honest with you. So we're getting better at trying to improve the standards that our integrations have. And so what we do is we have open APIs so anyone can integrate. That's fine, but not everyone can be a partner. And so we put the higher standards on our partners, knowing that you can still build an integration. You just can't necessarily be a partner without making sure that that you've met the needs of what our users are asking for. And so it's pretty rigorous for us to tier our partners so that we can prioritize. And that just kind of comes back to every time we have to think about the prioritization and we use that data to try to do that of like the benefits that each of those partners gets is based on what tier of partner that they are for us. Actually, while we have you, Brendan Cohen has a question just as a tangent. How do you determine what third third party services or clients are using? Just a quick question there. So I would say this is a really big challenge for us that we spent a lot of time doing. We use Built With. I can't recommend it enough. So anytime we have a customer that joins, like a new customer MailChimp, we actually scrape their site to see what tools they're using. So that's one way that we do it. We look at our directory searches and see what searches that they're asking for. And if they're asking for searches that we don't necessarily integrate with, we we look at those and tally those up and prioritize. We do a survey once a year. We just finished our survey this year. We call the adjacent platform survey where we're asking customers all the tools that they use. And then the last place um, that we do is we look at our exit surveys. And when customers leave and we ask what integrations that they wish that we have, or integrations that we do have, what they wish that that integration did that it doesn't. Awesome. Okay, so Eric, same thing question to you. And then once we get through this thing, then I can really get into it. So like, why partnerships for Chargebeat? You have a much larger surface area of potential partnerships. So what was the answer when they hired you? So the, the, the part that we realized is that we are just one cog or one component in the entire tech stack for a company to operate, right? We're we're really focused on subscription management, which includes billing, but we don't do payment. So we're reliant on working and finding with the, those payment providers to, to do that part of it. We're also not in the accounting and GL space. So we need to find partners that will then synchronize all of the activity from that into the, the accounting. There's also other things that we don't do like taxes, because when you send invoices for certain types of products and services, you need to assess tax. As we start thinking about all of these partners, we kind of came to this framework where you have either adjacent partners, complementary, and strategic. So strategic for us, pretty easy. That would be like a payment provider. That would also be like an accounting software. Complementary would be something like a MailChimp or an Avalara for sales tax because you can function without them. But if you are in those certain businesses, you're going to do that much more. and achieve that much more success by having those complementary solutions. And then there are things that are adjacent, which are completely optional. They may help you. You don't have to. An example of that would be BI and data analytics tools. We have a suite of things that you can do inside our product. We definitely make the data accessible so that if you need to use a third-party BI tool, that would be helpful. And then there's a few other tools here and there, such as Slack for example, that's very adjacent to what we do, but it can provide some you know, utility that our customers are asking for. 
And so once you kind of establish how you put and bucket each of your partners into that, it actually makes it uh, a little bit easier for your approach on account management or maybe territory management, if not a certain sectors that you're trying to go after. Like you maybe want to have four or five different partners in a certain sector because that's going to give you the ability to get the most coverage or the ability to close more sales on the sales side, or it maybe gives you regional coverage. So what works in North America, maybe you have to find a similar partner, but they're the leader in they're the leader in Europe, or maybe down to a certain region like Germany or France, there's a particular partner that you have to go seek that's similar to the ones that you may have pre-existing. That's a great segue to what I want to talk about next. So like given you came into situations that were a bit chaotic and you had to bring they hired me, that's why they hired you to bring it into order. There was existing partnerships across the organization in different places. Partnership leader and anyone who's running an executive team, whether you're creating a new team from scratch or even you know two years in, it's going to be the same because partnerships is always spread across the whole organization no matter what. It's all about figuring out how you fit into your internal organization first. That's my experience. That's priority number one. So first question, where does your partnership team report to, Eric? So I report to the chief revenue officer and the chief revenue officer has sales, pre-sales, there's a customer success partnerships, and then a sales ops organization that we call revenue operations that supports all of those groups. Interesting, marketing is a different group. So, right. And have you always reported to CRO from the beginning? At the very, very beginning, I reported to the CEO and COO. At the beginning of this year, we actually just hired our CRO. And so that's when I made the change over to that. Okay. And then Joni, I want to ask you a second because you had a bit of a journey there. So where did you start uh, reporting to? Let's start with that. I started off in marketing, reporting into our vice president of product marketing at the time. And at the time, I had responsibility for our agency partners and technology partners, both from a partnership management and marketing. And that's evolved since I moved over to our product organization. I report to our chief product officer now. And I left the marketing aspect of our role sitting over in marketing. And what came with me was the technology partner management side of our business. And we picked up and grew a product team to focus on building the tools for our integration partners. And we've also gotten quite a few new roles that didn't exist at the company to support our technology partners as well. And where does the channel team report now? The channel team just actually switched. They were reporting into marketing until last month. We hired our first chief customer officer who has responsibility for support and our channel partner organization. And then the product side of our channel team reports into me. Okay, so this is an interesting story for you. I mean, a lot of people, when you start off as an executive, you're trying to hold on to the little ground and island that you control. But the, the, once you get comfortable, you realize it's actually better to give up and to restructure so that you have the freedom to succeed, which is what you did. So how did that go? How did that conversation go? When did you come to that realization yourself? And how did you present it internally? So they went, this is actually a good decision. I can take that. I would say one thing that, that came to mind was, I think Eric alluded to it when he was talking about, we kind of went where we had relationships and we did this. I would say that we went where the fires were and the fires were where our existing partners were. Like brand new partners aren't coming out of the woodworks going, there's a fire over here because they don't have a fire yet. And so 
we basically split the team, our partner management side of our team. It's been probably a year and a half ago into business development and account management. And that has worked really well from us on the partner management side because it allowed a, a good handoff, but it allowed one team to focus strictly on new partners and the other one on existing. And I think it played to the strengths of the team, which naturally I think people are either hunters or farmers. And I think that it went well with their skill set and helped us prioritize the work that, that we had. I think it's like the right thing to do. Like there's different kinds of partnerships. So you have to align align your partnership groups to the functions of where the companies are coming in, right? So that's a very rare thing. I mean, Eric, you're doing something, you're also building a team, but you have tech partners and channel, I think, reporting to you right now. So how are you aligning them with the different parts of the organization? What What work did you do to set them up? I think, honestly, I'm still in the process of threading the needle, but we're learning from a few bumps in the road, which are not bad. The tech partner one, that's pretty easy. It's really lining up product to be on the same page. And then a lot of input from our integrations team for post-sales support, and then all the pre-sales teams, because they're doing what we're calling solutioning, which is trying to advise the customer on, this is the best use of our product with what you have or your system, plus all the, the other things that you're running to, to connect into. And so there's a lot of alignment there on enablement, getting the right training, access to the right systems, the right level of support. And so, I mean, that's no trivial task, right? If you even take something relatively simple, like a partnership with Zero, there's a lot of complexity just for that product, even though it's geared for a smaller sort of size business where maybe they don't have as many features or needs, all the way scaling up to Salesforce, which is like, the sky is the limit. There's lots of other applications that are also integrated with Salesforce and all the different platforms it can provide. So And there's the ability to do heavy customization, right? And so we have kind of everything in between on the tech side. On the channel side, I think the, the most interesting one there is we're sort of Firing up that at the same time as firing up more and more local sales teams. So our company traditionally has been very, very strong at inbound and inside sales, where we're just trying to drive demand gen and then our sales teams just get very qualified leads and they close them. Now, as we continue to grow more into the enterprise, we're going to have to have boots on the ground, people in the local region speaking the local language. How do we as a partnership organization support them? And that's actually one of the challenges that we're already rapidly going through in the short amount of time that we've had our partnerships team is I have a team that I've built out for this year that's now a team of eight. And we're quickly noticing that, well, the more we push, the more sales is going to push back and say, we need more support, more help, more localize this, more localize that. And so we're trying to respond by morphing some of our processes as well as thinking about how do we structure the team so that burnout is, is not going to be an issue? Well, that leads to a good question from Christopher Zeller. So it was originally for Zone, uh, Joni, but I think both of you have, have had this problem. So Joni, why don't you start? But he, he's asking, what messaging or events from your partnerships department have helped to evolve your sales teams into tech stack masters to capitalize on potential integrations for merchants? Helps of improving client retention. Now, I don't know if MailChimp has salespeople, but maybe it does now. Last time I checked, it did, but maybe it did. Does now? Like, how do you, what do you think? We actually do not have salespeople, but what we do is we consider our channel partners, our salespeople, our boots on the ground. And so, what we've chosen to do through the channel partnerships team is incentivize our channel partners to add features 
and get paid for them. So when they have a client and they turn on certain features and one of those features is integrations and we chose certain integrations that were strategic to us, the channel partner actually makes revenue share on that. And that's for us trying to drive that retention because we chose integrations and several other features that they can be incentivized on because we found that those product features are important to our customers. They help them stay longer. So we're using the channel sales team, like our partners, as a means to be able to do that. But I think it it would be a very similar thing to be able to set up for your internal teams, your internal sales teams too. And Eric, you're training your sales teams now and adapting to them. So what are you doing to get them aligned to your initiative? So we're really having to spend a lot of time and thinking through what is the right amount of training because there are so many partnerships. But another thing that we're starting to experiment with is can we actually train certain salespeople to specialize? So what I mean by that is most of the AEs that we have are obviously going to be learning about our product, learning about how to promote that within certain things. But there are certain sort of advanced features or advanced topics within the category space that we fill that are going to require almost like a subject matter expertise. And so we're actually running this play where we want to have a salesperson dedicated to focus on a particular set of topics that are complementary to our core offering and that involve co-selling or even potentially reselling partners' technology stacks. Jay, I think this leads to the question that I really wanted to get to. So I've been leading you all down to this point, which I think is a real difficult problem that a lot of people have, is who do you hire or what roles do you construct within your organization for partnerships? And I mean this in this way. So both of you have talked about how you specialize roles, you know, account execs and business relationship people and within the sales enablement team, your side. But these are choices you have to make and you have eight headcount. There's only so much headcount you have to have. Now, a lot of the people I know who are running partnership teams, there's too much surface area across partnerships and they're, and they're kind of in this analysis paralysis phase. You know, whether you're right or wrong, what is your story? How did you guys, like internally, I'll start with you, Joni, like how did you, you know, how did you just make the decision, like the call, like we're going to invest here or there? What was your process? I would say that the smaller your partnerships organization is, I'm a believer that you hire more generalists and the larger your team gets, the more revenue they're driving, then you hire more specialists. I think the main reason for that is if you're going to have a really small team, they have to be able to wear a lot of different hats. And so our partner managers were playing partner ops. They were playing product managers and I inherited a team. So it was easy for me to look at the skill set of the team and say, we have this and this is where their strengths lie. And then on the biggest gaps on the team, that's where I went to hire next. And so like product manager was one of the very first roles that I ended up hiring, knowing that my partner managers were great at, you know, the negotiating, finding the partners, but like product management didn't exist. Another key role that I found was super important. And I think it depends on your organization, but trying to even get technical answers, technical questions answered for partners was super hard. Like trying to pull engineers away from like the product work that they were doing to help our partners. I just wouldn't get answers. And you'd have these partners going, I want to build this. And we're like, we want to help you, but like our partner managers aren't super technical. And so solutions engineer was like a key role that we added to the team that's been super helpful. And we've hired a second one since, and I can't say enough good things about having solutions engineer directly on the team to help. 
And then I would say the, the last role that I just made an offer to, she is starting our very first one. I'm a developer relations advocate. And again, it's a kind of along the same lines of our solutions engineer, but it's areas of gaps that like our current team was just not filling. And we were hearing over and over and over from partners, including on surveys, what where they were having faults in MailChimp and where we could do better for our partners. And that's where we chose to invest. So you're reacting to demand and then just doing a gaps analysis makes sense. And actually one question is, at this point, do you have a dedicated engineering team at MailChimp for your integrations? How did you convince, this is from Anonymous, but how did you convince the brass to give you precious engineers? I would say that one of the big things was doing some opportunity sizing. And I'm, I'm a big advocate anytime that you're trying to ask for headcount, showing what you can do with your existing headcount and then showing what you can do with the added headcount. And our executives always go, I want that. I want that nice shiny object over here. I want that much, you know, that bigger partner, that bigger revenue of driving. And so when we point out, well, if we have this many more, we can do that much more with it. And we show the kind of with and without, and that's worked really well for us. We have a cross-functional team of 50 now supporting our technology partnerships. And that ranges from engineers to QA to design to support product analysts to insights. It's, it's a pretty robust team now. Very impressive to get that much investment. By the way, same question to you. you know, so you're building these roles out. What was your process on the side? And you're doing a lot faster. I mean, you hired a lot of people last year. So how did you decide these were going to be the places to go? Small correction, we hired a lot of people this year. Last year, I didn't have, I only had one person. I'm sorry, I'm in 2021 already in my mind. Oh, okay. 2020. (laughs) (laughs) I'm giving Um, up. So mine was thinking about scale and, and how do we get there. And so I took the approach of looking at other models that other teams, generically speaking, we're, we're using to kind of have this high throughput, high velocity. And the model I came across was essentially a sales pod where you have an account executive who is closing, an SDR who's doing the qualifying, and customer success who's basically doing the post-sales. That's not necessarily true for you know, all organizations, but that's generally how the sales pod model works. And so how could you then reform that but apply it to partnerships? And so the partner manager acts as your account manager executive, but instead of having customer success, we have partner success. And those two roles just by itself, one is focused on hunting and farming, depending on, on the type that they are, or the category. And then the success person is really focused on how do I coordinate and manage all the activities that happen with the partner. So whether it be enablement and training, whether it be commissions, referrals, what kind of programs do we want to put in place? Are there any particulars? due to the preferential treatment of that partner. And then the last piece that I added, and so instead of having sort of an SDR, because we're dealing with a long-term relationship, is I actually have a partner marketing person sitting inside of partnerships. So they don't report into marketing, they report into, into our team. And the reason for that is because, again, we're dealing with 60 plus partners today. If I were to do at least one event a week, I could just rotate and cycle through the whole thing. And it's probably going to be a few activities, um, a quarter or a few activities a year with each partner. And so that pod can then basically scale and support multiple partners simultaneously rather than trying to build such a large organization. But they can also deliver hopefully the same types of materials and products that are going to be applicable to as many partners as possible. 
Joni wrote in the chat, she's jealous of Eric. I'm outing you. We're all jealous of Eric. <laughs> I mean, the first time he told me he had marketing resources on his team, I'm like, damn it, I would give for that. Maybe even a finger, an arm or something. I give something. <laughs> I had to do the same thing at, at FreshBooks because we were just admitting so many Marcom activities to the partnership thing. You can only coordinate with these teams so for so long before they're yeah, like, so can you just package it up for us, please? I'll say one other thing about why I also thought it was really important to fight for kind of this model was because think about it if you're trying to work with a partner and then now you're the partner on the other side. It's not just a one man show or one woman show seeing the same account manager every week, every month, every quarter. You actually can see that we are trying to put the effort and we care about you by having a dedicated marketing person and a dedicated success person who are servicing you as a partner. And so while the account manager is leading the charge. You don't need to speak to them all the time. You probably need to deal with the marketing person because there's an event coming up or there's a contributed post. If it's a success person, hey, could you help us create, you know, or, or take the lead on coordinating more training videos or more co-marketing testimonial case study, all that sort of stuff, right? That's definitely not what a partner manager wants to do. I mean, to Joni's point, if you have a small team, they're all going to be journalists. You've got to do everything. But I also thought that that wouldn't help from a scaling point of view. And you're going to get a lot of burnout because you're switching too many times, right? Rather than kind of giving them the specialty where they are good at, which is, again, managing and, and hunting for accounts. Our marketing team is dedicated to us, like the people that are on partner marketing. The challenge is, is that no matter what they're doing, they're then up against the other marketing priorities in the organization. And a lot of time, our marketing to our customers gets prioritized over marketing our partners. And it's a constant battle for us, even though that we have, again, a dedicated team, that team is still fighting, like, for example, to send an email about partners. Well, we've got to get in line with other emails that are going out to customers as well. One other bit of advice I would challenge everybody who's listening to this is we've also been bold and we started to make inroads with our product design team so that we're actually asking them to do work for us now. Because if you think about it, right, a technical integration requires screenshots, requires some workflow to be shown either in a video or with some collateral you're generating. So we're trying to tell the product design team, hey, can you help us? with some of the graphics that you're already going to be using for documentation or for internal workflow to show that you actually completed the integration from a UI UX point of view, can we repurpose the final finals so that we can leverage that for marketing collateral? We're coming to an end, but there's some interesting questions on this in the Q&A that we can follow on. So pretty good question here, though. So you are building these pods. You guys are both integrate, Eric, and you have, you're in the product group, Joni. So Randy Farbach asks, so how are you measuring results? Like, how are you measuring the success of these tech partnerships, integration partnerships? Did you build something internally? Are you using a third-party system? Like, what physically are you using and what are the KPIs? So I'll start with you, Joni. So we think about this in two ways. We think, one, the measurement on the front side of, like, should we partner with someone? And that, like I mentioned earlier, built with is one way that we're trying to do that measurement and platform survey, et cetera. And then after we're actually building, I would say while we're building, we actually talk to mutual customers of each of those partners so that we come up with the best use cases to build the integration for. And then measuring after the fact that it's built, we use BigQuery quite a bit and we look 
and we have looker dashboards. And basically what we're measuring is like how many people are connecting. And we look at using built with how many are connecting and how many do we have left to connect and look at that rate. We also use any time that we're doing any marketing or sales activity on what that uptick is in connections based off of that. And we're also looking at how long a customer is using an integration. Because if they are not... And when I say using an integration, we're looking at how many like API endpoints are actually being called. Um, because sometimes the integration, the way it's built, you don't have to go in and actually physically be doing anything. But as long as it's sending API volume. Because if if the customer isn't using it, that integration wasn't useful for them. So we're measuring like how many have connected to it and how long they're using that integration. And of the features available in the integration, what of those features they're actually using. You mentioned uh, at the top, like they give you more money and they last longer. Those are some bottom volume metrics to in product integrations that matter. And then Eric, how about yourself? I mean, you have a sales pod structure. So do you have KPIs and how are you measuring success there? We actually are measured on revenue because there are some arrangements where we, we do get revenue generated through partners. And then also sourced and influence leads from our partners or pipeline activity there. And then in terms of the tech integrations, we do actually measure how many of our merchants, we call our customers merchants, are integrating at least one, if not more. And then based on that, we'll try to actually execute campaigns to increase the number of merchants that should or could find useful some of our other integrations and either they weren't aware or maybe they've been putting it off as oftentimes does, which is you just want to plug the system in and go to truly try to drive some value proposition in saving money, saving time, saving costs sometimes, and really trying to show that, as I think Joni mentioned too earlier, which was the more integrations that you have, it drives stickiness, which drives LTV, and that makes everyone's job easier. Eric, do you look at how much revenue, like the MRR of the user connected between various integrations? So like in one integration, the customer's MRR might be lower than another and prioritize that way? We do, but the way we have our system set up is we already divide our customers into segments rather than verticals or, or industries. And so obviously for somebody who's generating millions of dollars in sales or, or tens of millions of dollars in sales, the expectation is they should have integrated, for example, an ERP system. They should have a CRM plugged in. They should have some marketing automation tools. And if they don't, we generally have the CS team ask why. So it could be a, oh, we're lazy. We haven't gotten around to the integration. Or, oh, we didn't realize you could integrate with this version of NetSuite. Or, oh, we totally didn't understand that you have uh, MailChimp you know, directly integrated. That could help us so much more in making our campaigns more efficient, communication with customers, et cetera. So sometimes it's just a little bit of awareness and, a little, and some of it's just understanding the procrastination. And the last question, I guess the wrap question, because we're about to wrap it up from Andres Morin, uh, on, kind of on this vein. I think, Joni, you mentioned that you partner with anyone, no matter who has a competitive feature. Chargebee is kind of similar. I mean, you are a billing system, you're integrating with billing systems in a way, like zero. So how do you deal with when there's product overlap? How do you make the sales team? You don't have a sales team, Joni, but like, what are you guys doing to deconflict when there's revenue opportunities that maybe you're giving up to the partner who has a better feature, a better product? Tough question for a quick answer. <laughs> maybe they buy you drinks. I don't know. I would say from our perspective, like, like I mentioned earlier in the call, we try to be Switzerland. 
in one way, like when I mentioned that we're paying our channel partners to add features to our customers, a lot of those integration partners have competing products with us. We still want them to integrate because at the end of the day, if the user is using that tool and we know MailChimp Plus fill in the blank, we know that's more powerful. We want that to work for the user because they're ultimately going to get more out of it and grow from it. So we choose to do it that way. I think we have less conflict um, because channel conflict because we don't have salespeople. So I think it's a little easier for us to not have that than Eric might have on his team. And Eric, you do have a direct sale. So how do you deconflict? We're pretty clear on, hey, here are the rules of engagement. You have to use certain tools in order to de-escalate channel conflict. We know it will still happen, but that's a fact of life. The other part for some of our biggest partners who are also competing with us, we're just wanting to have a very open conversation. And it's asking really good questions about where do we want to draw lines in the sand? And if we don't ask them, then that means they're afraid or we're afraid and we shouldn't be. We should just say, look, we know we compete. In fact, we know we lose deals to you or we win deals from you. So let's just figure that out because the simpler you make it for both sales teams, it's just going to be that much easier to win together. And so we also want to make sure that there are a few wins that the both sides can point to. So there's also building some confidence that this can work despite being fraught with a, a lot of issues and, and infighting and all that sort of stuff. Communication and not being afraid. What a surprise. What do you think we all do at the CSA? That's why we do this all. All right. Thank you guys very much. We're going to go to the speaker's lounge for those who are our executive members. I'll throw the Zoom link in. Joni, Eric, this is really great. Thank you so much for telling your stories. I hope it makes it easier for people to think about their 2021 planning coming up as well. Thanks, everyone. If you like this and want more great insights on software partnerships, you've got to rate, like, and subscribe and join us at thecloudsoftwareassociation.com. Thank you, as always, to our podcast producers, content allies. They help B2B companies like you launch revenue-generating podcasts. They'll schedule interviews, produce the podcast, and promote it. Check them out at contentallies.com. We'll see you on the next episode.